I don't know if you're anything like me. I suspect that you are, uh, that your life often looks like the scene I'm about to describe. Um, I, and my life, like yours, is busy. And, and I get to this place where I feel overwhelmed with responsibilities uh, to the point where I sort of can't think past the next item on my calendar or my agenda. You ever get to that place where it's like, whatever's happening even later today, later this week, I know there are things, there are responsibilities, people I need to talk with and meet with, things I need to do, errands I need to run, but like this one thing I can do right now. <laughs> you ever get to that place where you feel like there's too much to do in too little time with too few resources? That's kind of the world we, we, we increasingly live in with a way that we resource time and food and, and money. We get to that place where it feels like there's too much to do, too little time, too few resources, and we're going from day to day and, and, and feeling that kind of strain of every moment. That's where we get very easily. And I don't know if you're like me. I'm sure you are. But uh, I, I get to this place of sort of paralyzing busyness. And so what I end up doing is I tune in to tune out. I'm sure none of you tune in to tune out. <laughs> Tuning in to tune out is that kind of thing we do at the end of a long, exhausting day where we think, I, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm over today. Like, I'm over the responsibilities. I'm over people needing things. I'm over these, these expectations I have for doing the laundry, for getting my books straightened and alphabetized, for putting my socks back in the drawer. I mean, just go down the list, and even things that don't matter become crushing weights for us, things that in the whole scheme of things just, frankly, don't matter. But they become crushing weights. Anybody else really care about their sock drawer? Because I do. I care about it. <laughs> I'm sure many of you know what, you, know what I mean about this tuning in to tune out thing. And what happens at the end of a long day like that, feeling spent and exhausted, is you sort of, you sort of devolve into this pathetic couch potato in front of the TV and you just lay there with your mouth wide open, eyes glazed over and suddenly you notice, uh, perhaps in your instance like mine, there's this empty bag of potato chips next to you. <laughs> How did that get there? And, and grease all over your hands. 750 calories of saturated fats all of a sudden. Now, I, the thing is, we all experience this kind of thing to one degree or another, whether it's time or money or food, or in an example I'm about to tell you, a little bit of all of that. I remember one time when I, when I did this. Um, I hate to admit, but it all started innocently enough. It was an evening I had to myself. Uh, I don't remember where uh, my wife and the kids were, but it was the evening I had all to myself, and I thought, as I'm driving home uh, before dinner time, I thought, well, I mean, the... the the fridge is half empty, and I'm too tired to make something like I was going to do that. I'm too tired to make something. And going by the grocery store to get, I don't know, God-designed foods like fruit and vegetables just seemed like too hard of a task for me at the time. And so, so I went by Little Caesars drive through and I thought, okay, I'll compromise by, by picking up a healthy cheese pizza, right? Okay? 
And then, sort of inevitably, as I get to the drive through window, it's like this alien being takes over my body. And I find myself saying, I'd like a hot and ready pepperoni pizza, please. And then I say, no, make it three meat pizza. And then I say, oh, throw in a crazy bread. And then I say, no, make it a cheesy bread. So all of a sudden, I've gone from <laughs> fruits and veggies that I should probably be eating to suddenly having this carb-loaded, disgusting feast that that could put a horse in cardiac arrest. That's sort of how it devolved for me in that instance. And within minutes, I'm sitting there uh, laying back in my appropriately named Lazy Boy, staring sort of glassy-eyed and uh, listening to Pat Sajak sort of give mildly sarcastic commentary um, while I yell things like, no, not another vowel. This is where we get in a world where our resources are not taken care of with intention. When your life's not on purpose. When things just sort of happen to you and you're unable to take care of the the money and the time and the, the food and the resources given to you. That's sort of what ends up happening. You devolve into this life is not on purpose kind of person. And that's the sort of thing that happens day after day in our consumer culture of entertainment and leisure, where we become paralyzed by by options and distractions galore that really keep us from doing what we know we should be doing. It's sort of like Satan sits there and he thinks, hmm, if I could just distract people from living intentionally for the sake of God's kingdom, then they will settle for lowest common denominator, unintentional lives. And I think that a quick view around our world and around our own experience to see how much time and money and food are spent poorly, like accidentally, is evidence enough that this project of Satan, of distracting us from living on purpose, has been tremendously successful. Uh, The evil one's scheme of distraction from living on purpose is working very, very well. And it has snookered and hoodwinked a whole bunch of us followers of Christ even, into this sort of nothing-is-lived-on-purpose kind of life. And what happens when a nothing-lived-on-purpose kind of life is taking over is that God's resources are just sort of going through our fingers, just sort of squandered on cheese pizza that became pepperoni or three meat. Did you know that over half, over half of grocery decisions are made on the spot? There's a, there's a whole world that does nothing but try to get you to accidentally live. And that's exactly where many of us are. A nothing lived on purpose kind of existence. 
where God's resources are not used for kingdom work as He intended, as He gave them to us. We are so busy that we don't have time to eat well or to plan ahead. We waste money on frivolous things, empty things. We put junk food into our bodies constantly. And it's a lordship problem. It's a lordship problem. We think that this, this thing or this money or this time or this body even, we act like all these things are ours to do what we will with them. We act like there are resources and not God's resources. All of these things are mine. I own them. This is my kingdom. And I should determine where it goes. I should determine how it's used. Which, of course, in a moment of rational thought for the believer of Christ, we all know is hogwash. But that's where we live. Accidentally. Living without intention of God's kingdom as the goal of our resources. Every ounce of them. Every inch of them. Every penny of them. Every second of them. Let me just talk about one of these for a moment. We're not going to have time to unpack food and time and money. I just picked those three because they're sort of the big three idols in America. Time, food, and money. They become the acceptable opiates by which we sort of medicate ourselves and bring ourselves temporary pleasure and enjoyment. But let me just talk about the issue of time. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't think that this is a, a problem, just, just listen to some statistics about, about busyness and overwork. There was a time in this world when uh, most folks graduating from business school, of course, wanted to make money and do well financially. Makes sense, right? I mean, they went into business. At least that, that's how we think about it. In 1999, 57% of the class of graduating business students in 1999 in 11 different countries said that their top career goal, their top career goal, 57% of graduate business students, is work-life balance. That's a response to a world that squeezes out every ounce of time so that you waste it. Financial security is not the first goal for business students anymore. People are taking lower-paying jobs on purpose all over the place so that they can maintain some sanity in their life. And younger and younger people are doing this. They would much rather have sanity and manage their time well than be paid more. I just read yesterday of the athletic director from the University of Georgia making tons of money, huge Division I college program. The athletic director took a humongous pay cut to be at a D3 school where there are no athletic scholarships simply because he wanted balance in his life. He said, I, I cannot live that kind of life anymore. 90% of employees in America report that they have a hard time juggling work and the rest of life. No surprise to any of us. One-third of all American employees suffer from what is called chronic overwork. 
The average number of vacation days, Italy 42, France 37, Germany 35, Brazil 34, Britain 28, Canada 26, Japan 25, USA 13. I'm ready to move to Italy. (laughs) This issue of our time and its management and the way it squeezes us sort of unintentionally, we let it happen that way. This issue of busyness and our use of time has become a new badge of honor in America. We admire people who multitask, we call it, which is impossible, but we admire people who multitask and who appear to, who appear to handle things efficiently when it should be the opposite. When someone asks, how are you doing, busy is one of the first responses. It's a correct response. But a busy life tells others that we are needed, but more importantly, busyness has become equal to significance. And we conclude that if, if we are busy, then our, then our activity, our lives must matter. And this isn't just young families with kids. It's everyone in America. This is one of the largest sociocultural problems in our world today, especially in America. I know grandparents who parent more now with their grandchildren than they did with their own children. I know single moms and functionally single moms whose lives make the rest of us look like a vacation. I believe busyness and the use of time has become one of the largest obstacles to meaningful relationship with God in the world today. And we do it to each other. We create that environment. It's not okay to to have time off. It's not okay to not be busy. What a lie. The bondage of busyness results in a mediocre life where God's resources are seeping through your hands. (laughs) We haven't even begun to talk about food or money. We don't have time for that. I didn't really intend that to be ironic and funny, but this thing about distraction, that is Satan's project of distracting us, this lack of purpose means that what's pushed to the margin is God's mission for our lives, the stewardship of his resources. And those are the things that are distracting us, food, time, and money. Satan doesn't care if you're here listening to me. He doesn't care about that. That means nothing to him. It only worries him if you go out there and you start using God's resources over which he is Lord for his purposes. Then Satan gets worried. Then he starts attacking a church. Then he cares. He doesn't care how many songs you sing about Jesus if you're not going to do anything with the resources God's given you. And we live in America with the opposite of today's big idea. Today's big idea is the opposite of this. And this is how we live in America. Stewardship of God's resources for my glory produces temporary joy in me. That's the opposite of today's big idea, and it's in your study notes there. Stewardship of God's resources for my glory, for my purposes, is what produces temporary joy in me. That's how we live with the stuff, the time, and the money that we have. That's living as if they are all my resources and that the goal of having them is my temporary happiness. What a farce of a life that turns out to be. 
That's a fundamental misunderstanding of an important biblical concept of stewardship. And on this issue, perhaps as much as anything else, we have to hear from God on this issue. We must listen to the Word of God on this issue of stewardship. We've got to clearly hear Him speaking to us in the words of Jesus today, in the pages of Scripture. So what is stewardship? Simply put, and this is in your notes there, the the word stewardship, according to the definition in the Dictionary says it's the conducting, supervising, or managing of something, especially the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. The responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Notice that it doesn't say it's yours now. Stewardship, biblical stewardship, doesn't say it's yours now. It says it's still God's but you were entrusted to care for it. So we're really going back where we were two weeks ago, if you remember when we talked about what it means to be a man. We talked about the essence of manhood being taking responsibility. It's stewardship, same story here. So when we are stewarding God's resources, which I think we should start using as a verb, steward God's resources, you don't hear that, but we probably should. When we are doers of the word and not hearers only, then God's sovereignty, his lordship of our life, becomes more than just this intellectual exercise that we grant and that we nod our heads to in a pew. When stewardship takes hold in our lives, we demonstrate for real that Christ is Lord. And it's not a game for us. It becomes a lifestyle of using God's stuff for His glory. And that's what, that's what this is all about. Stewardship of God's resources. Producing joy in us for His glory. Turn to Matthew 25. We'll start at verse 14 and we'll go all the way from 25, 14 through 30. And look at this parable that Jesus tells and how it applies to us in this issue of stewardship. And as we dive in, there's something important to see about the context of this parable. We'll read it all in just a second here, but I want you to note something uh, about this parable. Uh, The basic gist of it is that, that Jesus expects us to do something while he's gone. Okay? He expects us to do something while he's gone because he's coming back. We're talking about Revelation next week, starting a big series on Revelation. And this, this is in the context of his return. Stewardship of God's resources for God's glory produces God's joy in God's people because they know that he's coming back to account for what he's entrusted to us. Look at Matthew 25. Start at verse 14 here. Let's read all the way through 30 and then we'll uh, go back, jump back at verse 14 and point out some helpful things along the way. Let's just get the whole broad context. Uh, Verse 14, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, For it will be, we'll tell you what it is in a moment, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, meaning the man's property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made the two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing. Of teeth. Jump back to verse 14 here. Jesus starts by saying, For it will be. Hit pause for a second. First question, what is it? <laughs> I mean, what, what is the it? It says, For it will be. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So what's the it? For the answer, we have to jump back to 25 verse 1. 25 verse 1, we could actually jump back all the way to the beginning of 24 if you want to read all of that later this week. Uh, but jump back to 25.1. Here Jesus starts this series of two parables in chapter 25 by saying this, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he goes on to tell of this, this Jewish wedding custom. Uh, he says that the kingdom of heaven will be like a Jewish wedding custom. And what they did was, it was after the wedding, the whole wedding party would return to the house of the groom for this sort of celebratory banquet. Uh, except this time, only half the party was ready. And so when he returned, the bridegroom returned for the party, the other half was basically caught sleeping on the job. In this first parable, Jesus is already married to the bride, the church. And the wedding party and the bride are, are awaiting his return. So Jesus says about the first parable. But only half the, the party is ready. So the point of the first parable in 25, in chapter 25, is to tell the disciples to watch correctly. To watch correctly for Jesus' return. To be, to be ready for Jesus' return. And he sums it up in verse 13 and says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Jesus is speaking of his own return to gather his people. Like he said in Matthew 25, 31, where it said, I'm sorry, 24, uh, 24, 31, where it says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and gather his elect from the four winds. He is telling the disciples about the coming of Christ 
in his full glory from when he returns. So go back to 14 and 25, 25, 14. And it says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Jesus is, is telling another story about his return to gather his people for heaven. So you could replace the it there in verse 14 with Jesus' return. I've circled the it in my Bible with a little arrow that says, Jesus return, J-E-S-U-S apostrophe, return. So moving on here, it says, For it, Jesus return, will be like a man going on a journey. That word journey there is the same word that's translated elsewhere in Matthew as going off to another country. So it's not like just going to like Mosheim or another state. We're talking going out of the country. This is a big time, out of the country kind of journey here. So this man was going on a journey, and he called his servants, that's us, we're the servants, and here comes the stewardship part, and entrusted to them his property. So the man goes away on a journey, an extended journey to a faraway land, and here's what the man does. Verse 15, this is Jesus talking. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, a talent, uh, in today's terms, is hard to sort of clarify exactly. Uh, Some people think it could be one talent as much as uh, hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars, um, as little as a thousand uh, the NIV note that says at the bottom of your New International Version says um, more than $1,000 is probably way too low. A talent is a lot of money. Uh, this man was obviously quite rich, and he gave his property to his three servants to take care of. So here's what they do with the talents with which they've been entrusted. Verse 16, Jesus speaking. He who had received the five talents went at once. In other words, he didn't delay. He didn't even wait for the master to to leave, to go where he was going. He went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. He invested what he had for the sake of the master. Are we preaching yet? So also, verse 17, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So in the first four verses, Jesus sets the scene for the master's return. Verse 19 says this, Now after a long time, at least many months, perhaps even years, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. In other words, it's time to tell me what you've done. It's time to tell me what you've done with what I gave you. I don't know about you, but hearing those words from my master, capital M, puts a whole different light on my stuff. whole different light on my time. His resources. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
Verse 20, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, What awesome words to hear these kinds of things from the lips of your Lord and Master Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. You can't buy that kind of reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. He was a good steward, responsible with his master's money. So the result was the privilege of sharing the master's joy. It's why we say that that what we do with God's resources produces joy, produces his joy in us. You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. The servant had the privilege of sharing the master's joy. Same thing happens with the second servant. Verse 22 says, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. There's the stewardship. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. And here's the joy. Enter into the joy of your master. But pay attention to what happens with the third servant. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. From the response of the master, we know that's assumption. It says, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. You knew that? If so, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, at the least. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want more and more to be able to say everything. Everything is yours, Lord. And and, and I stand before you the chief of sinners. We've all experienced being the one talent steward, haven't we? We've all experienced what it's like to be given everything and digging it in the ground and being content with that. We go through life oftentimes sort of like like a banker 
looking around at the millions and millions of dollars. Looking around it as if all of that money in the bank were his, when, when really he's just been given those resources of food and time and money, our family, our marriage, our cars, our work, our, our, our giftedness at doing things, how well you work with your hands, how, how well your mind works, how good you are with technology, how wonderful you are with kids, nurture, all of those things. Every single one of them. All of those resources are on loan, entrusted to you. We would all agree intellectually that everything is God's. (laughs) Yes, he owns it. Every one of us would nod our heads in agreement to that. And then practically, functionally, walk out the doors and freely, unintentionally, Spend our time and our money on temporary, unfulfilling trash as if that's going to make us happy or bring God glory. Friends, stewardship is a lordship issue. Who owns you? Who owns your time, your money, and your body? And the motivation for this kind of God-glorifying lifestyle to which Christ himself is calling us here, the motivation for this kind of God-glorifying lifestyle comes from seeing one's life, all of one's life, as a return of thanksgiving for knowing and loving Jesus Christ. You ever work for somebody who, who you never saw? It's sort of disheartening. Like, like who wants to work for somebody like that? Or a boss who never says hi, who doesn't know your name, who doesn't see your work. That's the opposite of working for a boss who you trust and who you believe. No one likes working for somebody who doesn't care for you. No one likes working for someone you don't even really know. But you and I, as a ransomed child of God, as someone who has experienced the work of Christ on the cross, can live as a response to his grace and mercy shown to you. That's stewardship. It's living and working for an owner and a master you can see. It's working and living for an owner and master whose work you saw. Because he is a God who stewards his own riches for the sake of you knowing him and spending eternity with him. So you can trust that kind of work. When you realize that that you're stewarding, you're you're entrusting, that, that you're taking his resources entrusted to you, When you realize that you're entrusted with his resources, you can eat, you can work, you can live, you can love, you can spend freely and abundantly because it's not yours anyway. 
Every single one of us who is in Christ because of the work on the cross has both a net worth of zero and infinity at the same time. And that's what enables us to live lives that spend and love and eat and take care of time that are freely and abundantly spent on the glory of God. Because when you do that, when we do that, we enjoy a relationship with Him that loves what He did on the cross because we're experiencing the same kind of freely, abundantly, giving away kind of life. That's what it's like in the kingdom of God. When you found the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, the mustard seed. That's why Jesus said to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Father in heaven, we are people who have taken, functionally taken, 